I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. I'm Pastor Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at the river and um, have the privilege of sharing with you God's word from Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to be honest, this morning, this is um, perhaps, uh, I, I keep thinking at some point Paul's going to give me an easy pre, uh, text to preach, uh, but that is not yet happening. Maybe it'll happen sometime in the year 2016 or so. Um, but until then, we have these challenging passages, and this morning we have from Romans 3 verses 1 through 8, um, what I would characterize in some ways as a bridge passage from one section where he's teaching something to another section where he moves into a different point. And we get a bridge pass, passage this morning, which is, is challenging to grasp. It was challenging for me this week, challenging even for me to communicate that well in the first service. So I hope you are willing to extend some grace to me this morning just as we uh, go through this. Lord, um, may the Lord be glorified despite um, uh, some of my... Uh, failings as a preacher, but I believe that God has some good stuff for us today. I believe, I, I believe because it is God's word that he always has something to share with us, to challenge us with, and my prayer this morning is that God challenges us through his word with something that we, all of us, need to hear. From Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted, they being the Jews, with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, and their condemnation is deserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've heard me talk uh, for the last couple of years, then you probably know at some level that I really, really dislike Disneyland. I mean, like, I really, really don't like the place. Happiest place on earth is just a big, fat, fat lie to me. I, um, let me tell you why I don't like Disneyland. Let me be clear in why I don't like Disneyland. When you walk to Disneyland, when you, well, you don't walk to Disneyland. You've got to park like seven miles away, first of all, and take a bus to the front entrance. And you get to the front entrance, and then you have to meet with the loan officer in order to be able to buy your tickets. Because it costs like, I don't know, $150 to get in the door. 
And so after you've met with the loan officer and given one of your kidneys, um, then you meet these people right inside the gate who they've got these looks on their faces like just plastered fake smiles with cameras that you're supposed to gather with whomever you've gone with to take a picture and look super happy. And of course, they get you at the beginning of the day. Because they haven't soaked you for all your money yet. So they get the picture at the beginning of the day with your nice smile on your face with your old family. And you're supposed to buy that at the end of the day for $32.50 when you leave the park. And then you go and you're in the park and of course it's in Anaheim. So you're warm because it's sunny and nice. It's Southern California at least. So you go, you go walking around the park and of course as you walk and you, you get a little thirsty, right? So you walk into the store or restaurant or whatever, one of those little, one of those little carts that they got around there. And you say, oh, I would, I would like a Sprite. I'm, I'm a Sprite with no ice guy. I'd like a Sprite with no ice. Yes, sir, that'll be $24. And let me, let me be clear why, why I, one of the reasons why I don't like Disneyland. I've been to Disneyland twice. I've been to Disney World in Florida once. The Disney World was a long time ago. Disneyland is twice in the last 15 years. The first time I went to Disneyland, that was about maybe, uh, I guess it'd be about maybe 12 years ago or so. Uh, we were with my family. Uh, my mom and my dad were out from Canada, and um, we thought, oh, it'll be fun to go to Disneyland. What day are we going to go to Disneyland? Well, Kristen had heard that the day after Thanksgiving is a great day, to, great day to go to Disneyland because everyone's shopping at the malls. No one's shopping at the malls. They're all at Disneyland. So literally, Cameron's like two at the time. We were the stroller and Katie and, and my mom and my dad and Kristen and me. And like this is what your whole day is. You get a fast pass. You know those fast passes? You get the ticket that gets you a, a ticket quicker. Even the fast passes, you still had to wait like two and a half hours to be able to get into whatever ride it was. We rode three rides that day. And one of them was the teacups. I hate the teacups. You get dizzy and you're ready to puke for the rest of the day. But then you puke so you're hungry again. And you got to spend $40. So then, so then um, you gotta, you, you got to make reservations at some of the nice restaurants to eat at the end of the day. And we went to the, the, the Louisiana place and you got to get some gumbo and Monte Cristo sandwich and the beignets. Everyone always talks about the beignets. You know what? When they spend... When they cost $25, they better taste really good. And they didn't to me. I just, ah, oh, it just drove me crazy. Well, so we're, we're there, and of course, you're tired. So what are you going to do? You, you got to find a place to sit down. Well, what would you do if you want to sit down somewhere? You go to a show. So we finally, we get to a show. And it's just nice to see, like we're 15 minutes before the show because of course everyone's there and there's no seats left, but we get one right in the back. It's great because I can just sit because I've been playing, you know, wrestling all day with everyone around the park. And we sit and it's nice and then the lights go down. It's dark. And then big music, big production, people come out and they start singing for 30 seconds and then all the lights go down. And a voice comes over, we're sorry, there are technical difficulties with the program. The show is canceled. I wanted to find Mickey Mouse and wring his little neck. And 
of course, you know, we're going around, Cameron's two, and, and when, when she's two, there's a couple things that you need to make a two-year-old happy, and one is a good sippy cup. You need a good sippy cup for two-year-olds because they got to drink their milk or their juice or whatever they're going to have. And we had a good sippy cup. No spill sippy cup and it wasn't spilling at all over the course of the day. Fill it up with milk. She drinks it. We rinse it out, put juice in there, whatever. It's all good. And some point during the day, some other little toddler in another stroller going past. They were so close. He decided that Cameron's sippy cup was better than his, so he stole it. I don't know that that's true, but that's what I'm assuming. So she doesn't have a sippy cup anymore. So I gotta find a sippy cup because that's the only way the Cameron drinks fluid. So I gotta go to one of the stores. And yes, they have a sippy cup. It's a Winnie the Pooh sippy cup. And it costs $18. You can get a set of six over at Target for like $250. And guess what? It's a spilly sippy cup. It doesn't keep the fluid in there. And if you have ever had little kids and they drink their sippy cup and it's spilled all over the front, that's not a good day. There was only one redemptive thing from the whole day. Went to the show, the show shuts down, and I'm ticked. I'm angry because the show is over. And we go walking out of the show, and if you know what I'm talking about, the show was right beside It's a Small World. And it was the day after Thanksgiving. And we were at the show at about 8 o'clock at night. And it shuts down, and we walk out, and it's dark over by It's a Small World, and all of a sudden, bing, Christmas lights. Awesome. It was pretty. It was nice. And I looked at it, and I said, wow, this is great. Awesome. This made my day. And then I had to go back seven miles to my car with 75,000 other people. By the time I got that back to my car, I've got to tell you, I still hated Disneyland. And I still do. I'll probably go again some other time. Someone will convince me. My wife, you know, we're going to go to Disneyland. Okay, dear. You know, that's just how it works. But if you asked me, would I tell you that you should go to Disneyland? What do, you, do you think that I think you should go to Disneyland? Actually, you're wrong. I think you should go to Disneyland. First of all, I want you to share my pain. I want you to hate it just as much as I do. I want all the money that I spent on, on Walt and his college fund, trust fund family, I want you to have to pay the rest of that. I, actually, no. Let me be honest. I don't like Disneyland. But some of you love it. Some of you have annual passes. Some of you go just to get dinner and watch the fireworks. Some of you have, hey, you met at Disneyland or you got engaged at Disneyland or it's got some special memories for you and you got little kids who are desperate to go to Disneyland. Then you know what? Go to Disneyland. I'm not going to tell you not to go to Disneyland because of my feelings about it, but you are going to have to figure it out on your own. Why would I even bring up that I hate Disneyland? Because in some ways, that's the sort of movement that Paul is doing in the text of Romans 1 and 2 into chapter 3. He has done all this work 
criticizing and critiquing and saying some strong words about Judaism and the law and circumcision. He has dressed down the whole idea that Judaism and circumcision and the law are all things that are, uh, are, are this identity for many people that gets them right with God. He's critiqued that, and he's shown that to be a fallacy, shown that to be false, shown that to be something that needs to be rejected. And then we get to verses 1 and 2 of Romans 3, and we hear him say this, What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Now, if we just read that independently uh, with, uh, you know, having read chapters 1 and 2, we would think that he would say, well, there's no value. Judaism and circumcision are rejectable. These are things that we don't need to hold in high regard. But instead, he says this. He says, much in every way. It's very positive. He could have said, well, there's some, or there's a little, or there's a bit, but he didn't. He said, much in every way. It's important that you uh, value Judaism and circumcision in some levels. Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, this opens a section, this whole section, verses 1 through 8, is called a diatribe. And I give you a definition of diatribe here, a speech that criticizes someone or something. I should have said that a speech that criticizes strongly, really goes after it, calls something that someone might see positive as very negative. This is the sort of, it's an argument tool to really, really show what the writer thinks. That's what a diatribe is, and that's what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying that Judaism is valuable and that to abuse grace is a problem. And that's the focus of this entire eight-verse diatribe. He's really wanting us to hear that there is value in Judaism and that to abuse grace with the second part of the passage, as we see he'll, he'll, he'll uh, look at and analyze, is certainly something that needs to be critiqued, needs to be put down, and needs to be called for what it is, and that is foolishness. Now, after all, after all this critique in chapters 1 and 2 of, of an identity based on one's Jewishness or of circumcision, we might expect Paul to reject them outright, but the actual opposite is true. He says Judaism is valuable. Now, why would he say that? Well, first of all, he says it because of this, that they are entrusted with, and what do we see in our text? It says the very words of God. The words actually in Greek there are logias to theu. The logias, its root form, is the, the Greek word logos. Some of us have heard that word. In fact, we hear it even in modern day culture used for some, some things. Logos means word literally. And in fact, it's used elsewhere to apply to a lot of different things, including in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, to speak of Jesus. The word, logos, was made flesh. So it's an important word in the text. And that the Jews would be entrusted with the logios te 
to theu is something that Paul is really affirming is valuable. And we see this, this uh, logias te theo, to, to theu, and we see the, 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 the translation is word. But it's broader than that. In fact, some commentators would use the word oracle. Oracle is something that involves more than just some of the quotes of God or even these commandments. It's a much broader term that applies to, in some ways, the full teachings. In fact, I, 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 I nail some of those down in the next point. Other sources use logios to describe messianic promises. Messianic promises mean this. Promises in the Old Testament... God has given us in his word that point us towards the Messiah, towards Jesus. And we see this in lots of the prophets. We see it actually in all the prophets in some way, shape, or form. We're entering into the Christmas season. And during the Christmas season, you're going to hear Beth or myself or others read from the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, from places in the text in the Old Testament where God taught his people the Messiah is coming. And you need to know not only uh, what to look for when he comes, but who he is and what it is that he will do. Those are the messianic promises. So that's part of the oracles or the logias to theu that the Jews have been given. Not only that, but then we also have the Abrahamic covenants. Abrahamic, short for Abraham, Abram. All the Abrahamic covenants are places in especially the book of Genesis where God taught or God spoke with Abraham and said things like, I will be your God, you will be my people. Your people will number as many as the stars in the sky or the sands in the seashore. Those are part of the Logios to Theu. And they're also broader than just the Abrahamic covenants. We also get them in Moses and affirmed again with Joshua later on. Lots of those promises, the covenants of God are included in that. Then we also get the law, the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, Leviticus, where we get the specific law, or the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is called the book of the law, those are also things entrusted to the Jews. In fact, if you speak to a modern day Jew, that Pentateuch, or book of the law, is something that many of them have memorized fully and completely, because that's how it is important it is to a person who is Jewish. Part of the logias to they, we can also refer to the full text of scripture. So when we read Paul saying that the Jews have been trusted with the logias to theu, he's saying all the important stuff, all the big things that God has been doing for thousands of years in the nation of Israel up until this point with Jesus coming, all those things that before the Jews have been given. And because the Jews have been given them, you need to hear them. You need to listen to them. You need to study them, struggle with them, work them out. You don't simply reject them because now you have Jesus. And then we move on to verses 3 and 4, and they say this. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. When Paul is saying this, he's speaking against those who would reject Jews because of their lack of faith. 
what are we talking about there? Well, ultimately what we're talking about is people who would say this, that we can reject the Jews because they missed the most important word of God. And what is it that the Jews have missed, which was the most important word of God? Jesus. Because Jesus came and he was crucified at the hands of the Jews. He was crucified because he was in conflict with the leaders of the Jews. So thus, someone could say, well, we can reject the Jews. In fact, this has been historically played out in many different places. In fact, it's been a reason for Jewish persecution in many contexts by Christians saying, you folks deserve punishment. Why? Because you killed Jesus. You rejected the greatest word of God, therefore you are contemptible, and we may reject Judaism out of hand. And Paul is saying, uh-uh. Just because Jews, not all of them, because some of them have certainly embraced Jesus, but some of them haven't. Simply because some of them haven't embraced Jesus, you cannot reject Judaism outright. And what does he say here? He says, not at all. Let God be true. God is true. And every man a liar. So even if all people of God, all the nation of Israel, all part of God's family, the whole church were a liar, God would still be faithful. We don't reject those things that God has given us through his people simply because of his people's behavior. Because, of some, because some of the chosen people have rejected God's ultimate logia, then God must have messed up somewhere. And Paul is saying, no, didn't happen. In fact, he's saying it as emphatically as he can. Meganeto. Say that with me. Meganeto. One more time. Meganeto. That's Greek. And what it says, that is as emphatic a, a, a thing that you could say against an argument as possible. It's like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? There's no way. It's as strong as you can possibly make it. And it's interesting that Paul is using this here, meganeto, because he will use it in Romans 10 more times. It's something that he's using in the book of Romans to make some things clear. You may think this way, but Meganato, it's this way. You may think this, but Meganato, it's this. He wants to make things clear because if you mess some of this stuff up, then you have a problem. And remember, Paul is going to be building. God, Paul sees the church being built by the Spirit through the Roman church, and he wants them from the very beginning to get things right. God is true. His faithfulness is true. His people may be liars, but he is right when he speaks and his judgments prevail. Now, a, a word about that quote. It's from Psalm 51. It's an, obviously, it's an important thing to what Paul is teaching. I want you to understand something about LXX. LXX means nothing to you, but if you are a, a biblical scholar in any way, shape, or form, you would know LXX stands for the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is important here because Paul's actually quoting the Septuagint verbatim. Well, what's a Septuagint? 
The Septuagint is actually an important tool for biblical scholars of his time and even today because it is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now follow me here. This might take a minute, but I want you to understand what's important here. Paul knows some Hebrew. He's, he's, a, he's a Jewish guy, but it is not his primary language. His primary language is probably speaking the home language, Aramaic, and his working language, we can tell, because he's written the book of Romans as well as many other letters and portions of the New Testament, is Greek. So Aramaic is his speaking language, probably. We're not sure, I'm conjecturing here. But then his, his written or intellectual language is Greek, where does Hebrew come into that? He might have some working knowledge of it. I would put him probably, maybe he's on, on, on my level, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I have some use, some ability to work with the Hebrew language. Maybe he knew it much better. I'm not sure. But the fact that here this quote is not a specific and direct quote of Psalm 51 in the ancient Hebrew text, but instead, it is a, an exact quote of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text, would make me believe that he is not as fluent in Hebrew as he is in Greek or in Aramaic. Why is that important? Well, it's important because Paul, like me, like all of us, is seeking to discern and understand God's word through the eyes of people who have gone before. He's trying to understand and determine what God is speaking from the original word given in the old Hebrew text, the Old Testament to the people of Israel, Moses, all those other folks who received it in the Old Testament. And even as he looks at the Gospels, how, you know, what, what, what was said there by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and trying to understand it and put it in a context and translate it for the people of the church now. That's what I do. That's what we do. We read the Bible in English, but we have to understand and trust that those who have translated it into English have been trustworthy and done their work well. And when you come here on Sunday morning, you trust and you believe, and I hope that trust is well-founded, that I have done, that Nick has done, Will has done, Bill has done, whoever else is preaching, has done their due diligence in spending time discerning what God's word has to say to us, that we might give that to you in faithfulness to what God's message is for our lives. Paul is doing that even in this text, which is interesting because he's discerning God's word from the Old Testament to become God's word in the New Testament. Good stuff. Good stuff for us to understand and good stuff for us also to discern as we read and discern God's word ourselves. Then we get this last four-verse section, verses five through eight. It's got this interesting argument and we're gonna walk that through. It says this, but if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? 
Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, how many of you understand that on your first reading? You got it? Congratulations, I need your help because I ain't there. This is complex stuff. Let's follow the argument and see where it leads us. First point of the argument is this. God is righteous and true. Amen? We can affirm that. The more righteous and true he appears, the more glory is his. Amen? We can affirm that. So God is righteous and true, and the more righteous and true he appears, the more glory is his. Next part of the argument. My humans, unrighteousness and untruthfulness, contrast God's. Amen? We can say that. Because of my sin, his goodness stands out even more. Can we affirm that? Amen? Therefore, I should sin more so he receives more glory. Now, we hear that, and for us, the logical end of the argument doesn't seem valid. However, if you follow the argument through, it would seem to have on some level merit. In fact, it did to some in Paul's day. There were certainly some who became what we would call grace abusers. I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I can be whoever I want to be. As long as I got Jesus, it's all good. Because his grace fully and completely covers my sin. And you can see the challenge because if I say God's grace fully and completely covers all my sin, you would say, amen. So if God's grace fully and completely covers all my sin, then, and if God receives more glory, the more he covers my sin, shouldn't I just make sure that he has to cover more? Of course, it, to us it sounds foolish. But there are people who live that way. In fact, I know that there have been different moments in my life where I may not have said it, but I certainly thought it. That, boy... I guess I'm just going to do this and Jesus is going to have to cover it. Or I really want to do that. But it's okay because I got the grace of Christ. And certainly we live in a world where there's almost that parachute of grace for many. It's okay no matter what I do in my life, at some point I'll pull the ripcord of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And his grace will save me. And the killer part is, that's true. That's true. But Paul wants to challenge that. If nothing else, he wants to challenge the mindset. The mindset that would lead us away from obedience. That would lead us from following God's law. 
the truth, the logios to theu that we have received from the Jews. Paul is wanting to critique and challenge that idea so that instead of us fueled to live for selfish, sinful, doing whatever we want to do, independent reasons, that we are fueled instead by these logias to theu, to obedience and living out faithful, the faithful calling of Christ. Now, we see that in this text that Paul affirms that if you don't live that way, if you don't live in obedience to the law, then, then and if you see it like this, these grace abusers, then, you know, the problem is God's, God has to judge, and God's standard of judgment is obedience to the law. Now, that obedience to the law is in Jesus Christ, but he still calls us to live in faithfulness. And if you're not living in any standard, within any standard of the law, then the judgment part's going to be pretty tough for you. The judgment part, I mean, you may still receive the grace of Christ and get into heaven, but there'll still be consequence. We can talk about that some other time. That's big stuff. There's some thoughtful stuff there, but... Judgment is based upon the law. But there's more. Turn with me back. Chapter 1, verse 21. It says this. Now, remember where Paul is there. These are all the people who have rejected God and they've turned to idolatry. Remember, that was the big sin of chapter 1, idolatry. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their, their what? What word? Thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now jump ahead to chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. What do we hear from these grace abusers? Futile thinking. They have, these are folks, grace abusers, who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, whose thoughts are messed up. So Paul, already, before we even get to chapter 3, has said, hey folks, thinking has to be right. And here he brings up a thought that many people think that is a problem. And he's already said, don't get into that. And then he also says this in 229, it says there, No, a man or person is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So between those two verses, we first of all hear this. From Romans 1, 21, don't pursue foolish and futile thoughts. And Romans 2.29, we receive this. Through Christ, the God you glorify is within you. The Spirit is within you, affirmed by 2.29. The Spirit is present. So when you are involved in foolish grace abuse that says, I can do whatever I want, God's grace will cover me. It's not a God who is out there, up there, outside of us. It is a God who is within, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not causing grace abuse outside of ourselves through disobedience. It's abuse within. We're abusing ourselves in the Spirit 
within us. Paul is really challenging people to get this stuff right, understood. Okay, so what? This is a complex text. So what do we come to? How do we learn from it? Well, the logios or logos of God have been given to us through the Jews and they should be embraced as part of our faith. It means, folks, actually, we don't just reject the Old Testament law. Now, certainly, there are Old Testament laws that we have as a church and through church tradition and through reading of Scripture and discernment said, we don't do these things or observe these things anymore as law. But there's some that I think we need to go back to or at least struggle with, think about. It means that we, as Christians, we call ourselves oftentimes New Testament Christians because we have Christ and we believe and trust in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ is saving us from our sins. It means that we, as Christians, we don't live simply in the New Testament. I love the Gideons. I'm really glad they do a lot of what they do. But one struggle that I've always had with the Gideons is that when they go into public schools, and they still do, um, they don't do this in hotels so much, but they do this in public schools oftentimes, they will go and they will hand out stuff to kids. And what do they hand to kids? A what? A New Testament with one other edition, two other editions. Psalms and Proverbs. And that ain't a bad thing. I am not telling you to go home and tell your kid don't take a New Testament from a Gideon if they're in a public school. I'm not saying that at all. But in some ways, I wish that they would just give it all. Because all of it has life. And all of it is hope. And all of it has the words of God. All of it has something for us to learn and struggle with. One of my great laments is that I, even as a pastor, as a person who leads the church and is called to be an expert in his word, have probably only read the minor Old Testament prophets maybe five times. And I would hazard a guess that some of you have never read them. What does Habakkuk have to say for our lives? What does Amos give to us? Those are the logos to theu, yeah? Those are things for us to learn from. Now, I'm not saying those are things that we just all of a sudden spend all our time on, but I am saying that oftentimes we get so caught up, we get so caught up in Jesus that we miss everything that God gave us to point us and help us more fully and completely understand Jesus. Those are the words of God given to us through the Jews and God be praised, they have been faithful in sharing that with us as the Christian church. And the second thing that I want us to go away from here is knowing that we, through Christ, we glorify God who lives within us. How we live for Christ matters. How you and I live. We can't live in that sort of grace abuse that people who would say, I can do what I want because the grace of Jesus covers me. We can't live that way. We live. Paul, Paul says we're, that argument's false. Those people have their judgment. You and I live within light of the Spirit who lives within us. We live in the hope 
that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And now we respond to that hope through obedience. Now, I'm going to get into something here. This is a little bit complex, but I want us to walk it through because I want us to understand how God receives glory in us. I call it the duality of God's glory in humanity. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Does God receive glory when you are obedient to his word and how you live your life? Yeah? Does God receive glory when you live obedient to how his word calls you to live? So God receives glory when you serve the poor. Yeah? Does God receive glory when you are faithful in loving your spouse? Does God receive glory when you are faithful in leading your children in the way that they should go so when they are old they will not depart from it? Does God receive glory when you are prideful? <laughs> he does. He does. Let me tell you why. See, the argument that Paul used contrasted God's righteousness with what? Humanity's sinfulness. And the whole idea that in that contrast, God's glory is magnified when compared to our sinfulness. The logic holds, but it doesn't lead to the behavior. We have to understand that God is glorified when we in some way, shape, or form point others to him. And you and I point others to Jesus when we obey what he called us to do and do what it is that we call us to do. We also give God glory when we live within his grace. And his grace is what covers all of our sin. So you and I, are not dependent. Let me say that differently. You and I, if we understand our standing before God through the grace of Jesus Christ, we give God glory when we're good for it and we give God glory when we're not good for it because when we live in the grace of Jesus Christ, even in our foolishness, even in our untruthfulness, if we are willing to come to the point of saying, I need your grace, Jesus. God is glorified. When we are willing to come to the point of saying to another whom we have wronged through our pride, our sinfulness, our, our lust, our selfishness, we are willing to come to them and ask for their forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. God is glorified. Folks, if you are in disobedience, don't think that God can't be glorified in you, but he is not glorified in your disobedience. He is glorified in how your, his grace through Jesus Christ covers your disobedience. That acknowledgement, I need Jesus gives him glory. God is glorified in us when we do what it is that he calls us to do. And he is glorified in us when we haven't done what he's called us to do and yet we understand it as a place where the grace of Christ can be at work. When Paul talks about 
obedience, when he talks about living in the logos to theu, the commandments given to us through the Jews, given to us through the history, he's saying, folks, live in that obedience. But guess what? Even when you mess up, even when you don't get it, even when you fail miserably, God will be glorified through the grace of Christ. It shows itself up. As we said earlier, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash our sins away. And the beautiful part is, that's where he's getting to. That's what comes next. That's where Paul has led us to understanding that grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to go in the days, the weeks, and the months ahead. Let's pray for together as we seek to continue to understand some of the challenge of his word for our lives. We pray, oh God, that you bless us with wisdom and discernment, some clarity. Help us to understand more fully how you are glorified in us. You are glorified when we do what it is that you call us to do. And we are glorified, you are glorified when we acknowledge that our need for grace in Jesus Christ, the blood that washes us clean from our sin. I pray, O oh God, for those folks who are here in disobedience. Lord, may that grace overwhelm them. May that love that you've shown them through Jesus overwhelm them, that they are called to the cross. They are called to a place of repentance, called to that place of need where we acknowledge we can't fix it ourselves. We need you. And Lord, may you be glorified in us too as we go out of this place living lives of obedience, living in light of your word, your logos for us. We might proclaim with how we live, what we do, what we say, who we are. That Christ is king and that he has saved us, redeemed us, continues to work in us, calling us to see the kingdom of God grow in the world that we live in. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them. Feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.